0: All right, everyone, (coughs) welcome. Uh, My name is Joe Stadalmik, and I am a Junior Research Fellow here at the Institute of Advanced Studies at UCL. And welcome to Misinformed, a roundtable on social media and the shaping of public discourse. Uh, This year at the IAS, we've been thinking about lies from the perspective uh, of a number of different academic disciplines. And so far, we've got events going, or we've already um, had events from, laws, film, literature, and most recently, psychoanalysis. So I encourage you to check the IAS website for more um, lies events and events on the other theme, uh, vulnerability. Uh, With tonight's panel in this lies research thread, we're hoping to understand the fortunes of political fact and fiction in our digital moment, a time of rapid technological development, and the development of new information cultures. How has this new media environment reshaped public discourse? And in all of our live events, we've learned that it's not so easy to separate pure fact from pure fiction, and I expect today will be no different as our panelists bring their insights to the role of social media in our political culture with both some critical distance and with some nuance. Um, and I'll do my best to moderate, and I'll be representing the misinformed up here, and uh, <laughs> after about an hour of discussion, we'll be opening up, uh, up the discussion uh, for questions from the audience. Uh, but. For, we're gonna start with just uh, the panelists, and uh, I'll introduce them. Our uh, David Bennington, already uh, at the end there, is co-founder and CEO of Signal Media here in London. Signal is an artificial intelligence media monitoring company that transforms digital information into accessible, actionable knowledge for business clients. Um, Dr. Anastasia Denisova is a lecturer in in journalism and uh, media studies at the University of Westminster and is currently researching the role of internet memes as the casual, artful means of political resistance and viral cultures. She has published research on the traditional and uh, user-generated media coverage of the Russian elites, digital media, and the public sphere in Russia. Lisa Maria Neudert is a researcher at the Computational Propaganda Project at the Oxford Internet Institute. Uh, where her work is located at the nexus of political communication, technology studies, and governments. Her previous research is focused on uh, propaganda, social bots, and fake news in its relationship to the evolving di- digital <coughs> media ecosystem. And finally, Dr. Greg Whitfield is a political scientist and philosopher. He's present. He's presently writing a book on the concept of political manipulation and the ethics of its practice within and between liberal de- democratic societies He's also my co-coordinator on the LIES theme here at IAS, uh, where he is also a junior research fellow. Um, So I thought we'd just start off our conversation today and I'll just throw the question out to all four of you and you can uh, talk it through, but take us back to a time before these most recent elections, uh, the the Brexit vote, uh, the American presidential election, when words like fake news and uh, Twitter bots and, the, uh, and Became a part of the political discussion and more into a time around the early 2000s when social media was something new something exciting and something that was on Our political radar, but was more of a part of a, a mix of a media a mixed-media environment and um, just give us a sense for how the role social media was playing in political culture then bef- before it really took center stage.
1: Well, I think for for internet scholars, there was this point in history where we thought the internet and also social media are going to bring people together. Um, I think we also still think that, and I think also, if I'm looking into Facebook's and Google's mission statement, they certainly still think about that too. Um, but yeah, so this idea on one hand, bridging people together that are um, spread across um, different global spheres, across different time zones, um, giving a voice to people that otherwise might not be able to speak out. I think that is something that we have seen social media can do. That is something that social media has done, for example, in online movements like the Arab Spring, um, where we have seen that um, people that were oppressed that otherwise maybe would have not been able to, to speak out freely. Um, have used social media as a means to organize and um, often to use the anonymity um, as well to really empower themselves. Um, I I still self-identify as a tech optimist. I still think that uh, social media can do all these things. I think the best example that we're having right now is the Me Too movement. Um, again, powerful um online movement that uh, was very much started over social media and is very much spreading there and is um, also not just a US movement, but is something uh, that is spreading across um, global boundaries and has also empowered many people that otherwise would not have had the the platform to speak up to use social media um, to voice their opinions there. So I'm still optimistic that we still can do that on social media.
0: And I think that that reminder of that moment during Arab Spring when uh, social media was a place of, of grassroots, almost organic political movements, uh, it, it's, uh, it, there, it, was a, it was a different attitude or a different spirit. But I still assume, as, as a non professional, I still assume that even in 2008, 2010, 2012, uh, I assume that. Social media was on the radar of political operations and the political class. Is there uh, even before before now, and we've seen its manipulation uh, go in different directions? Mm-hmm. Um, so, Anastasia, how was what was the place of social media in? Uh, you work in your research is in, in Eastern Europe, is in, is in Russia. Um, how was social media? Part
2: of that political conversation? Yeah, um, no, I agree with you, uh, first of all, in trying to be really uh, optimistic about social networks, media, internet in general. But uh, <laughs> let me start with it. I'm thinking, right, while you were asking the question, yeah. while you were replying, that basically in the late 90s and early 2000s, um, there were all the big complaints about the power of the media. All media brainwashers always like the big uh, television corporations in the newspapers, in the radio, in the magazines they tell us how to live our life, how to understand politics, what to pay attention to, what not to pay attention to, how to interpret the events and things. Then, after the rise of social networks, finally, uh, the people got the ability to raise their voice, to voice their opinion, to be heard, to talk to each other, to communicate, and what they did with this. Not much, to be honest, because I remember there was a great study actually by, I think, Oxford uh, Internet Institute in 2008, one of the first ones about the, what people do when they go online. And the majority of people would do this for entertainment, shopping, uh, communication. And it's like 10 or 15 percent would actually go there to do politics, to do like governance, to check for something politically related. and. Um, uh, The more that we go into the 2010s, uh, obviously, I agree with you that social media, they do give uh, certain platforms to different people, different communications, different interactions. But with all this overabundance of information and facts and voices and scream and shout, I think what we're really missing now is the quality media, who can take it back, repack, reinterpret, explain, check the facts, right? and give it back to the customers, like to the audience, right? Who don't have really time to go and check the information and to, to make up their own minds. So I think it's, it's a kind of, it's a mixed feeling at the moment. I mean, uh, it's lovely to have social media, it's lovely to have uh, different ways to communicate, to interact, but uh, it's still the hierarchy of forces. I think it's still there. The dominant forces, the ones with money, with more power, with kind of manipulative strategies, under the belt, they really can do something more than average people who are a bit, you know, maybe sometimes have, you know, flatter uses of the social media or the internet in general. So I wouldn't think about social networks as something revolutionary for the politics and society. It is it is a bit of a game changer, but it doesn't change the, the whole rules of the game. It doesn't rename the game. The game is still there.
3: I like what Anastasia just says and I want to, oh, sorry. I like what Anastasia just said, and I want to expand on it and and take Joe's prompt much farther than he intended. (laughs) For Long before the internet existed, we shouldn't picture a kind of golden age of authoritative, factual media. There were times when it was better than it might be now, or when it was better or worse, but when we think of, say, post-founding America, the media landscape there. Papers were almost entirely owned and run by party organizations. You still see the remnants of these things by names of papers like the Whig Standard or the Democrat Intelligencer that were basically organs of party propaganda. And they operated in much the same way that the worst elements of our current media voices media uh, area works <clears throat> and their politics did not as a result of that end up in catastrophic places this isn't to say we would wish to repeat those those mistakes of the past but just to say that i don't think there's anything At least anything to worry about that's extraordinarily new under the social media world we live in it's true that radical and very far-winged voices get significantly more exposure than they might have at certain periods but there'll be There's a few reasons I think we shouldn't worry about that all that much. The first, and and this will be a theme I come back to a couple times, is that one of the things we know from political science experiments is that people are not as terrifyingly wrong about political things as we might think they are from asking them. One of the things people do when we poll them, when we ask them about political questions, is they don't answer the question honestly. They don't experience the question as a direct question about knowledge and facts. They experience the question as whose side are you on? As though the questioner is giving them an opportunity to voice their alliance to their political side. So we ask a random assortment of Americans, is Barack Obama a Kenyan Muslim sleeper agent? Uh, And a significant proportion of Republican identifiers will say yes. Now, they don't literally mean yes. They don't actually think that. When pressed on this, when offered a small reward for giving a correct answer, they default to very close to the Democratic proportion to that answer. But what they are doing is telling us that Barack Obama is bad. We don't like Barack Obama, we like the other guy. And so reading lots of what we know about political polling, political information, the way people behave on social media through this lens as a kind of effective attachment to their group instead of honest engagement with the world around them should change some of our big worries about what people are saying and doing and should blunt them in just this way. Partisanship has always existed. Group allegiance has always existed. This is just the most recent expression of that solidarity.
0: But I I wanna push back against that first thing you said is that things aren't that different because the, uh, the technology behind like, behind media consumption has changed so much and I think the existence of a company like signal media and the tools that you build are uh, couldn't have been built in the 1830s or uh, relies on this huge amount of data that we have on individual readers on individual users and you can get a sense for the media environment in a, in a different way so uh, David, when you were when you were starting Signal Media, uh, what was the what was the, the, uh, what did the business look like? The business of uh, media analytics, and the what was the opportunity that you saw there? Yeah, I mean, um,
1: um,
4: yeah, I mean, I think the three big things that have that have changed since we founded the company about four and a half five years ago and certainly was kind of arriving at a time when a bunch of big technological trends were beginning to converge, um, were really kind of three fundamental things. One, computational power, the fact that for the first time a startup business, we founded a company in a garage, um, as you do, um, you know, had access and availability to the same sort of computational power as an incredibly well-funded global corporation. Number two, the accessibility and availability of data, um, and when you think about social media, media, it's become ubiquitous in the sense of, <clears throat> you know, uh, uh, over half uh, of the world's population will be active and using social media by 2020. Um, you know, and Google and Facebook have an incredibly aggressive um, expansion model into, into the places where they're not ubiquitous today. Um, sorry. Um Okay. Um, so yeah, one, computational power. Two, the availability of, of data with which to mine and understand um, what people think, what, you know, what they say, what political leaning they have, but also probably more likely what cat memes they like to share, uh, what, you know, what products they like to buy, what movies they like to watch. Um, that ability to actually get a sophisticated and nuanced understanding of a given individual. And I think our willingness as consumers to give away a lot of ourselves online um, was is a very, very stark difference to the polls and surveys that were traditionally rolled out when trying to gauge that sort of sentiment. Um, we give away everything about ourselves, and that is an incredibly rich treasure trove to be able to mine. And then the third piece, which is really the foundation of our company, is is the, the emerging sophistication of machine learning and AI as a, as a set of technologies that can you know, and I think we're you know we're we're still in very much that phase where we tend to overestimate the capabilities of technology now and underestimate the capabilities of technology in the future. Um, so I think we need to caveat this whole conversation by saying AI during the American election was not a you know Cambridge Analytica was not able to enter the minds of our young children uh, and the voting population and somehow influence to them influence them to vote for Donald Trump. But what 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 these firms and what a huge number of people have taken advantage of that. Of is that ability to get a sense of someone, and then to be able to use these platforms to begin to influence the conversation. And so, when you combine, you know, so that in of itself, this availability of data, the sophistication of the technology, the computation power, none of those things are scary in of themselves. Because if we can help people shop more efficiently, or find films they like more effectively, or communicate with people in a more um, meaningful way those are all positive things i think what becomes worrying is when you look that there were i think uh, 280 million fake facebook accounts in 2017 there were 48 million fake twitter accounts which was 15% of the general twitter population i think 130 million american in the in the in the in the recent analysis done by their government 130 million americans uh, consumed fake news if you want to call it that misinformation misinformation generated by russian uh, uh, Facebook bots um, during the general election that combination uh, with the ability to understand someone's political leaning or what they might buy or what they might shop is, is really worrying uh, and then I think the just the final point I'll make is um, is I think we need to stop talking about social media as this kind of like conceptual space this is not a conceptual space these are big companies and we need to understand what their business models are and Facebook's business model is to make us click on stuff because, you know, then they can sell us more advertising, um, and you know they posted fifteen billion dollars of profit this quarter, off the fact that we click on lots of links that they put in our feed. So really, their whole business model is about us clicking on more stuff and therefore consuming more advertising revenue, and therefore you know, when you think about people with a certain political leaning, are they going to be more likely to click on an article that enforces their worldview or or contrasts it? And I think that's been the biggest change. When we used to consume media, even though there was Overton's Window and left-leaning publications and right-leaning publications, generally there was a rule of thumb that, you know, you had an editor there putting what should have been kind of somewhat semblance of factual information in front of people. And I think now, there are no rules on online. You can put anything in front of someone, and if they have a general disposition to lean one way or another, they're gonna be quite likely to pick on it. So I think until that ad- advertising revenue model is broken and changed, um, you know, we're gonna to continue to Let's
0: open that question up to the other panelists. This relationship between the big media company, the big media companies, well, Facebook, <laughs> uh, Google, Twitter and uh, traditional journalism reporting, or their users—that uh, what are their responsibilities? Uh, how are, how is that going to change? Are we already seeing that changing? So, of- and
4: just one thing I would say is they, they wouldn't call themselves they don't call themselves media, media companies. Yeah, In fact, right. they they refute that altogether. They right. say they're technology platforms, and I think right. that's probably.
2: And actually, it's it's pretty wicked to be honest because uh, they really fall uh, into this gray zone of legislation of regulation whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't know if you've noticed, um, when you search a media article on Google, it doesn't bring you to, let's say, to the Rolling Stones or to the Guardian. It creates a window by the Google where you can see this article, which means that like Rolling Stones or Stone or um, the Guardian, they get no traffic. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows that you clicked on this piece, which means that advertisement is not going to those media providers, not to those who made the content, but to the Google. Right, the ones who created this kind of mini window, especially when you browse from your mobile platform, mobile phone, you can see that. And you really need to find the logo of the provider to click on it and to go to the website of the media organization. And it's a massive problem, to be honest, because it's really undermining the advertising budget, the advertising revenue uh, of the professional media. And I don't think uh, that, you know, like Google is doing it uh, unconsciously. Obviously not, right, because that's also the way how they despite not calling themselves a media organizations, they're trying to monopolize uh, the information um, circulation, right the, the providing access to the facts, the interpretation mm-hmm. to the opinion. And uh, I think Catherine Viner from The Guardian, she really uh, got really cross about that and she made a statement about this uh, policy. and other quality media, they also uh, speak against it. Uh, but we really need to see some regulation, I guess, in place to try to stop this practice because it really doesn't help at all. Um, speaking of the publics, I mean, I see your point definitely. I mean, with a, such a, you know, vast number of fake accounts, misleading accounts, uh, manipulative accounts, it's really hard to see where people uh, go to get their, uh, you know, daily meal, as we call it, the, the daily package of information and statistics and facts and whatsoever. And um, I think it was some research that said uh, that um, the majority of the millennials, they actually just start the day with the social media feeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't even bother to go, I don't know, to don't BBC or CNN or whatsoever as we know it. And um, there's the other thing that uh, Facebook is another kind of great platform. They also pack the things for you, right? They, they, they put together your, your media diet. And it's also something that we take for granted. And it's only, I think, in the recent years that people started to you know, wake up and just try to deconstruct it back, was being served to them. Um, and it looks like information, looks like the media, but it's not in reality. Um, so yeah, I don't know, how's it going mm. in your research about that?
1: Yeah, to tie into that a little bit, the, the moment of waking up. Um, I quite honestly think, I'm just going to throw that hypothesis out here, I think we are at a moment where those companies are waking up. Um, so I do think when we we're thinking about the business models that Facebook, that Google, um, that YouTube is having, yes, it's about monetization and about getting the most clicks, um, but I think we are at a moment now where those companies are realizing that this is not going to be a sustainable strategy anymore. Mm. I think we have had those Clickbaity publishers like BuzzFeed, but also like more fake news, junk news outlets that have really exploited on that ecosystem on social media by making content that was shareable, that was clickable, um, with very misleading headlines, that was really driving the traffic up. But um, increasingly, social media companies are coming to a conclusion that this is not gonna get people on their network, and not going to get people on their network for good and to stay. Um, why I say that is that uh, Facebook, for example, has rolled out a new newsfeed or is rolling it out in a moment and they are saying they want more meaningful content on their platform. And that basically means, as they are saying, we are getting rid of news a little bit only every. Every fifth uh, post or so is going to come from a public page, but it's going to be more about friends, it's going to be more about family, whereas all of that clickbaity stuff, all of that engagement-baity stuff um, is not something that they want on their platform anymore. And Facebook even has said themselves um, that they expect that the total time that people are going to spend on their platform and also the total engagement is going to go down. Um, that is something that has caused uh, the Facebook <clears throat> stock market value to drop the next day, because obviously advertisers have said, that's going to be terrible for us. Um, but this moment of realization um, that the current media ecosystem on social media is, is poisoned and um, it's not going to be there to inform people, I think that is slowly setting in.
4: I mean, just to respond with a view on that, I mean, I think, I like the positive outlook. Um, I'm not quite sure I subscribe to, to, to the, the way Facebook, Google, and some of the other social platforms yeah. have responded to this. I mean, I think this has been all about covering their asses and you make, making sure that the PR fallout has been minimized rather mm. than a kind of proactive choice to decide that quality content and quality engagement is the metric that they should be measuring. To be frank, Facebook have known about this problem now for the last six seven years uh, and done almost nothing about it until the Trump issue came in and there has been this huge kind of recoil against misinformation and the way it's been shared online and they've really only responded to this now mm. out of the fear of regulation and let's be frank i mean regulation would be the worst possible response to to this issue this has to be, in my opinion and, and it would be uh, you know a very very crude tool to fit you know regulation is never the answer in particular in such a fast-moving spaces uh, as this, um, it would be old before the, 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 the ink dries. Um, but rather than Google, Facebook, Twitter, and in particular Facebook standing up and being affirmative about what does quality engagement look like, um, they have actually completely accelerated this crack cocaine advertising model, which is all about clickbait and nothing to do with quality engagement. And this recent step that they've taken, which is, okay, well we'll remove news, Um, for me is being an absolute cop-out to be frank and um, you know they have billions of dollars invested in R&D but that R&D all goes into what's going to make you click on more posts not what does quality engagement look like Um, and then the final bit around the the surfacing more stuff from your family or friends I think one of the issues this has, and I'm no expert when it comes to the the political impact is that there's a fascinating book written by Kaz Sunstein which talks about um, how you know it's called rumours and it's all about how you're going to be more likely to click on Information or engage with content that's been shared by your family and friends. And the big problem that we face is that, you know, Cambridge Analytica, et cetera, didn't influence our political decision. They just create made us more polarized. They made people who were more left leaning click on more and more left leaning content, and people who were more right leaning click on more and more right leaning, and, you know, pushing us further and further outside of this, the usual norm, Overton's window, what sits in between. And as we become more and more polarized through that, Kraken comes, you know, really. You know, polarizing figures like Donald Trump, etc., um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. And so I think this—that is the issue that we face, which is: Are these filter bubbles going to get larger and larger, and are we going to get pushed further and further away? And where is the platform or the space for you know uh, communication with different views? Um, and what the Guardian, and whether you have read the Daily Mail, maybe not the Daily Mail, you read the Times or you read the Guardian. They would occasionally put content in front of you that you didn't necessarily agree with, and in these social um, um, constructs where we're being just fed what we're most likely to click on, are we being pushed even further and further away? Um, and I think anyone who has a social feed will probably um, attest to that, uh, where you click on one thing and suddenly you see you know, uh, that same view repeated over and over again
3: a bit against the idea that siloed the happenstance where we end up interacting more and more with people we agree with and we end up interacting more and more with pieces that we agree with exclusively is causal in the link towards increased polarization and increased partisanship in I understand American politics much better than I understand British ones, so please pipe in to correct me if I say something insane in this current context. It is true that aligning with your group, the people who you agree with politically, and consuming more of the kind of things that those people like, solidifies your belonging, your identification with that group. To the extent which you might have identified more broadly in either direction, from where your ideal point is with your group, more siloing, more engagement with those things is going to narrow down that personal window of yours. But it's not the case that we have empirical information that suggests it's actually pushing you in any particular direction, left or right. If I'm the kind of person who might seek out news from Breitbart, Reading more news from Breitbart is not going to make me more right-wing. It's not going to change my views in an appreciable way away from the left. It's going to increase the amount of information I believe I know that paints the left in a bad picture. It's going to increase my negative partisanship in various ways. And that's troubling for different reasons. But increases in group solidarity alone shouldn't lead us to worry about the very worrying phenomenon of the rightward drift of the right in many contemporary democracies. That, For that, we have to look to another set of causes. Uh, among them is the much broader media environment. In America, at least, this goes to the foot of cable television and right-wing news radio. These have a much more identifiable causal relationship that eventually leads someone to silo themselves into the Breitbart media sphere online. One comes before the other.
4: So uh, I would say in the, American, in the American landscape, you know, that polarization between Democrat and Republic exists in a far stronger way than, than in some ways my experience of UK politics, and I think the referendum here Is a great example where there were a lot of people who just didn't have quality information and that that context i think is incredibly worrying because it has now been absolutely unrefutably proven that there was vast amounts of russian influence and misinformation being spread during that period um, through social platforms and i believe there were a lot of people who just didn't have quality information who could have gone one of two ways and who were directly influenced by, I'm not saying by social media, but by the discourse that was occurring at that particular time. It was a much more blank canvas in that sense. Obviously, people had dispositions position one way or the other. Um, you know, and I think there's going to be a bunch of research that will come out. We've just done, we've just done I've been part of the select committee reviewing the, the, the involvement of Russia in, in, in the referendum. And I think there's going to be some quite frightening um, results as to how, how strong the hand was that was being played there.
2: Um, I say something, that. not just because I happen to be Russian. (laughs) It's not the case. I'm being accused of being paid by KGB, CIA, my six on a daily basis. I'm good. I'm a Russian uh, teaching and researching in the UK, so very mixed identity at the moment. To be honest, I mean, um, I was trying to trace this case, the recent one, when uh, there was a story all over the big media that um, the Russian boat posted a picture of a Muslim woman woman who kind of just passed by the terrorist attack without paying attention, being on her phone, and there was like a huge scandal, but apparently it came from the Russian uh, fake Twitter account, which roughly had like two or 300 followers. Honestly, it's nothing, right, in the sea of all the Twitter accounts and communication. And um, I don't uh, necessarily disagree with the idea of the Russian involvement, right, in the kind of social media manipulation politics. Although I think we still need to see a bit more um, quality data about that, just just because I think uh, that the Cold War sentiments are really becoming stronger and stronger at the moment in the international politics and the communication between uh, Russia and the West, like both ways. It's really mutual, right, at the moment, and it's something that I've seen um, increasing over the last 10 years. Uh, Still, I'm, I'm totally happy to agree with you if more research comes in. Having said that, I think in the country uh, where we have Daily Mail, we have The Sun, who keep posting incredible things on the cover pages, who keep mm. accusing immigrants of all kinds of things. If you remember this, you know, hilarious front cover page, uh, Swan Bake, mm. about the fact that, oh, you know, migrants, they actually uh, bake the swans in Hyde Park and they eat them alive. When you have tabloids, which are extremely popular, right, especially in this country we're talking about Brexit and referendum and stuff, is it really, is it really reasonable just to say it's about the social media communication, social media involvement? Because if you think of the amount of the hate speech, of the misinformation, of the distorted facts, panic, scream, gossip, all these sort of things that we receive from tabloid media, is it really about the little Russian bot that put something over there? Mm -hmm. And not because I'm Russian. Once again, um, the same thing with uh, I think with the U.S. election, we can see a massive alienation of a certain massive groups of population over there. We can say, oh yeah, it's because they saw a meme and share it with uh, one another. Maybe something much bigger, much greater than that. Because even the fact that um, now we have in power a person who does not speak the truth to his followers, he doesn't. There, I don't know, to, to even you know um, confess that, yeah, I lied here and there. Nothing. Um, I've, I've been to this conference and uh, they counted that it took 12 Associated Press journalists to fact check one speech by Trump, which tells you something. But even in this landscape, he can say whatever he wants and people like it and there is the reason why people like it. Because maybe they can connect with this argument, which is completely, uh, maybe not related to the facts of information, but they want to believe a certain myth, certain hero, certain you know, outrageous personality over there. So I think um, when we talk about the media facts, including the social media facts, it's really easy to draw the conclusion that, oh, what we see and uh, read or discuss in the media, it really informs how we live our lives, how we understand politics, how we do politics. But it's too easy. I don't think there is this uh, short link over there. So I think there is such, uh, you know, big and tectonic changes going on at the moment in the societies in the West.
4: Mm.
2: Never mind even Eastern Europe. I'm not even go there. Well, even in the West, you can see this. You know, like segregated society, like divided in two clearly, and the elections they show us that. So I think we really need more research.
1: I would like to respond directly to that, um, because I think the narrative that it is just a small Russian bot with 200 followers is dangerous. Um, I think it's just as dangerous as the narrative uh, of saying we are living in a Cold War. Um, To reference a couple of facts, and um, David has also referenced a couple of them already. So 126 million Americans have seen content on Facebook that was designed by the Internet Research Agency, which is a Russian propaganda agency. Um, Twitter said they have found 50,000 bots that were active in the US elections, specifically also from the Internet Mm -hmm. Research Agency. Um, China, to bring up an entirely different country, says they have a staff of 2 million people on social media operations and Internet manipulation, which is incredible, and that is also the case for many, many other countries, both democracies and regimes as well. And I think the problem where we're still having the the narrative that it's like a small outlier bot that was disseminating some misinformation that nobody has read is firstly because we're not seeing the data um, because Facebook, um, YouTube, Google, um, partially Twitter are not sharing all of the data that they are having. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially a Facebook, um, obviously it is not a public network, but pages are private. Um, However, um, we are in a situation where the U.S. Congress has been pressuring and petitioning um, those companies to actually come forward with data um, from the Russian election intervention and what has been happening. And even uh, a year after the election, those companies came forward in a public hearing in front of Congress with a little bit of data, um, but I think it's nowhere near data what research would need and also the data what the public would really need to understand the scope and the scale of this problem. And I also think that the second problem is that a lot of the manipulation that is going on and a lot of the propaganda that is going on is very subtle. Um, So for example we know that on Facebook, um, Facebook says they have taken down some 450 pages that were related to Russian propaganda. 450 pages on Facebook sounds like nothing, it sounds a whole lot of different when you hear that only four of those pages have reached 126 million Americans. And then if you're looking into those pages, those pages were not pages that said Trump should win the elections and Hillary Clinton is crooked, but those were actually pages that were very, very subtle and they were talking about problems that were already ongoing in the population. They were about Black Lives Matters. they were about uh, the rights of Russians. Uh, sorry, not Russians, but of uh, lesbians and gays. Um, there were about veterans' rights. So, all things that were already going on in the population. And I think this is also where I say no, we're not at a blank canvas, but mm-hmm. we're exactly at the opposite. Um, we are in a situation where um, propaganda actors are using the problems that we already have within a population, the skepticism, the, the fears really, and are feeding on that and are exploiting on that by throwing propaganda at us that is so subtle that it's very, very hard to distinguish um, from genuine content.
4: And this is where if you then mm-hmm. partner up all of that with an organization like Cambridge Analytica, who can literally um, segment uh, populations online based on demographic, based on a bunch of breadcrumbs that you need. Mm-hmm. Then the ability for them to target individuals who might be more susceptible to influence becomes um, that much greater. And I, th- I think I, I agree with a lot of what you said. I think I think you cannot call out a single um, aspect. And certainly, the Russian state-sponsored which it was, but uh, propagating misinformation during the referendum are not the sole reason why almost half the population in this country voted to leave. No, and Daily Mail definitely has a part to play in it as well. Um, but I think this, you know, the, the first people who used these tools for their game were the Democrats actually. A, a Barack Obama, and actually before him a couple of major senators used social media to fundraise in a way that had never been done before. They, they, they moved from grand sponsored, um, you know, major ticket investment into, you know, multiple high velocity small investment. And then he worked with an organization, I used to share a building with them, in it, who did incredible social media campaigns using a lot of the tools and techniques that Cambridge Analytica now employed? I think the challenge has become is as these tools have become more pervasive, right. they've fallen into the hands of anyone. So a bunch of kids, teenagers in Macedonia can sit in a room and build overnight a, a Tweetbot network that actually does have huge scale and huge impact and is going generally uh, unchecked. Um, and coming back to what role the platforms have to play in all of this. The, the result and the recall after the U.S. Congress has done their analysis on Russian influence in the U.S. election and after the select committee here in the U.K., they're going to get regulated. Like, And it's going to have a huge impact on the whole ecosystem. Um, and that will impact us in many, many ways, many of which I don't think will be positive. So I think it really, they're going to have to respond. And it's going to have to be more than, I guess, the PR stuff that we've seen so far in my opinion, which has been you know, we'll recall a bit of news, it has to be a much more proactive um, attempt at actually encouraging and incentivizing quality engagement over, frankly, what today is just clickbait. Mm. Um, You know, so we as an organization or a commercial business, we use a lot of these technologies to help businesses make better decisions about, you know, their brand, their reputation, risk compliance, opportunities, but we've partnered with a number of other startups and London uh, School of Economics and a number of other organisations to try and build a disinformation index which will try and score the quality of content uh, which is a very difficult thing to do because you suddenly start finding yourself getting into censorship Uh, and there's a whole bunch of uh, problems (laughs) with doing that and what is the Daily Mail, is the Daily Mail misinformation or um, is it just a very far right leaning news source. Um, So it becomes very challenging but I think ultimately like a nutritional label on the back of a, uh, a, a, a you night know, of a food that you're about to eat. I think we have to be able to arm people with the clarity of where this information has come from. The, you know Who's produced it? Who's making money out of it. Um, is it? Has it been factually checked by human beings? Are there factual statements that can actually be refuted in it? And ultimately, is there some kind of quality nutritional score that we can apply to it that at least doesn't filter, but provides a little bit more context as to what it is that people are consuming. And a lot of people will ignore it, um, but at least that's some step in the mind I
0: think. So incentives not only for consumers of media to uh, approach that diet more critically, but also incentivizing that's media outlets it. themselves Absolutely. Absolutely. to change the way that they're using social media to uh, win new readers. Yeah, brands
4: have a role to play in this as well. well. You know, a lot of people made a lot of money mm-hmm. out of the clickbait that was circulating around uh, the elections. Um, huge amounts of money. There's a commercial. Actually, the biggest production of fake news in the world is in China to do with um, diet-related healthcare. It's bizarre, actually. It's just vast amounts of fake news saying that if you eat this, it's going to make you better. Uh, Or if you take this drug, it's going to make you better. And a lot of it is fake, unscientifically endorsed. So there's big business here. And so this is as much about the advertising revenue and the model around how advertisers generate money uh, as it is about the political ramifications, I think. Um,
3: so I think that the idea that we can score uh, pieces of media and you know, assess their truth value in some way and then prime people to think about this when they consume them is very hopeful. I think it's a noble goal and a good one, but the comparison to nutritional labels is nice because I think about the way I use nutritional labels and you know, a month out from the holiday season, we're all, I, I'm pretty well incentivized to think about nutritional <laughs> labels. There are very few things that people are more culturally attuned to and incentivized to pay attention to. And I would bet we're not gonna find anything like weight gain aversion to incentivize people to care about the truth of media. and. You know, that brings me back to something you said that I quite like, that there's a set of underlying problems in society that make possible the manipulations and interventions of uh, nefarious actors Mm -hmm. across social media. One of the ones that political scientists like to talk about is, is what they call negative partisanship. Negative partisanship is unlike normal partisanship, which is just group alignment, in that negative partisanship says the other group is bad. And if I simply think the other group is bad, I don't need to think very hard about what my group is up to. It leads to things like voters in Alabama willingly voting for a literal pedophile because the Democrat is unacceptable. It's worse. All we know as Roy Moore supporters is the Democrat is gonna ruin the world. We can't have it, can't allow it, can't stand it. And so they're willing to hold their nose for the worst people on earth uh, in order to pursue this negative partisan agenda. So one of the core problems we face is that people don't like each other. People don't trust each other. They don't wish to engage one another in the cooperative venture that is democratic society. The distrust and dislike of the other is so high that one of the main features of social media and one we haven't talked about all that much is not organization to to people, but it's person-to-person engagement in the comment threads under any of these things. And the first, the highest voted comments on any of these are just going to be, well, you know, that's Hillary Clinton's fault, or, you know, that's if Theresa May did this, otherwise this wouldn't be a problem. People are looking to own, to use the internet parlance, one another online, not to engage productively in these kind of aspirational ways we might hope Twitter and Facebook would engage. And against that backdrop of polarization and negative partisanship, truth doesn't factor into it. I, I don't think Trump supporters care very much about the truth value of his statements. They care that he's beating up on the bad guys with whatever he says.
0: Um, Anastasia, do you have anything to add there? Because your research on the, the memes and as and substantial political debate—it seems like that—that that is a point of interaction between that cult, internet culture of. Uh, Owning, I think, was Craig's word. Owning the other, the other person yeah. uh, is is meeting uh, is meeting political culture.
2: Yeah. No. Thank you for this. No. First, yeah. Thank you for uh, bringing in the numbers, and I, I really, I really want to see uh, the results of your study because at least something that brings you know big numbers to big assumptions, links them together. Because so far, it reminds me of the debate in the nineties about the media effects theory, when people were trying to see the links between video games and violence in the streets. Mm-hmm. And it was really popular idea to say, yeah, directly directly link. But my concern here, I always come from the more qualitative side of things, mm-hmm. right? And I, I don't disagree with you. I absolutely don't. <clears throat> I'm just trying to see whether kind of these numbers, this exposure to those votes, mm-hmm. does it really transfer that to the voting decisions? Because let's say, yeah, they had this, um, Maybe number of views, number of clicks, number of things. But I guess all of us when we browse on a daily basis, we, we can end up on the most ridiculous websites, right? But it doesn't mean that, oh, we read it and we take it as the absolute truth. So I think perhaps it lies somewhere, somewhere in the middle between mm-hmm. our two kind of approaches and studies. But yeah, it, it's great that you're doing it. So looking forward to read more. Coming back to the memes, um, yeah, it's an interesting thing because memes as um, the, you know, the viral text, the, Image uh, with a bit of a kind of joke underneath that people can share, can adjust, can enjoy. Um, uh, we call it a, a half baked joke in meme studies because it's something that is kind of weird, kind of absurd. You think that you're supposed to laugh at it, but you're not sure why exactly. So <laughs> you have to have a certain knowledge either of the internet cultures, of popular culture, of political context, or like social awareness. So what's going on, basically, right? Why are you supposed to, to laugh at this thing? And uh, these, I think, uh, that what really distinguishes memes for the digital natives, for the digital population, because it's a thing that really belongs to the like, recent generations. Um, in politics, it can be used really differently. For example, I think in the West, you don't see really uh, kind of extraordinary cases uh, of the, the ways that memes would be you know a uh, significant game changer as opposed to the political campaigns i was trying to ha- have a look at the the brexit oh no sorry not brexit the, the elections and the memes about theresa may and corbyn they were relatively okay they would sometimes talk about the same topics as um the the mainstream media would but nothing extraordinary whilst in russia for example when all the media are government dominated owned or controlled directly or indirectly uh, and you can really talk freely only on the internet. I think memes become a bit more important in the way they can uh, talk about certain things in a more metaphorical, allegorical way, not to say things directly. Plus when you share a meme you don't have to use your own voice. You just share your funny pictures and then people make of it what they make of it. And for the censors it's also a bit difficult to, to get through the memes even to do the search the words, the text, the metaphors, it becomes a bit more difficult to decode. Uh, And I think the third function of memes, we're talking once again about the Russian language, political environment, is that very often they keep uh, the conversation going, even in, uh, in the absence of any offline activity, of any offline protest, of any ways to transfer that into any change. I was doing uh, interviews with some meme makers, the kind of the big ones, and they were saying that it's the way to let off steam and to keep the sanity of mind. Because when you have so much propaganda like, coming in, I mean it's, it's all over television, it's all over kind of the big uh, internet platforms. It's all over the place. And it's literally it's very subtle, as you're saying. Like, it, it doesn't have to like, tell you directly like, who to vote for, but there are so many little messages here and there that you, you really kind of, when I go to Russia and there's like television in the background, I come back, I'm brainwashed. I seriously changed my mind about so many things, so I have to kind of <laughs> go a detox. So yeah, because it's like that, you know, like the television is all about, you know, the, um, the military glory that you're being reminded uh, daily for no reason, right, without any anniversary whatsoever. So basically all those things, right, they, they do create a very strong and influential information environment. And when people create memes, at least they use their mind, their creativity, and they interpret things differently. They can connect with other people who can also interpret things, uh, interpret things alternatively. So these are, I think, the main political roles of memes they can talk about. Mm-hmm. You know anything about memes? your <laughs> Yeah.
5: <laughs> yeah. I'm good at best. those too, yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I think the one, one point I was just going to say in response to, to the question around scoring quality but then also, I guess, the rather sad... Um, <laughs> <laughs> that people uh, hate each other. Yeah, everyone that hates each <laughs> other. I, you know, I think if your question originally was around what, what was social media, how was it used, when it was originally seeded, and what were some of the examples before this, all of this information, and I think... Um, you know, Arab Spring is an, is an amazing example of how these tools were used for mm-hmm. positive change. Um, and I think, you know, the, the question people ask is kind of what role does technology have to play in, you know, how much can you, can you attribute to technology to some of these quite scary things that we're seeing in the world today? Well, certainly from my perspective, some of the scary polarization uh, and some of the scary things going on at a political level. And I think technology has a significant role to play i think the the big the big players have a significant role to play in what we're seeing today but also in potentially the resolution and all of these tools can be used as much for bringing people together um, and enabling a better platform for conversation as they can for the polarization piece as well and i think this i just I keep harking back to the same message until these big platforms decide that that's what's going to incent Better growth, and until they're measured by the public markets on some of this quality rather than click, um, you know, I don't think we're going to see that that sort of positive impact. I think we're going to see people continuing to use these tools ne- for nefarious gain. But you know, if you can understand what people think, um, what views they have, and you can connect them with people who have oppositional views. There's still going to be the extremes on on the outer edges who don't want to conversate, who don't want to uh, share ideas, who aren't willing to change their perspectives. But actually, elections, as you all know better than I will, are won and lost by the people who sit in the middle. You know, the the Republicans vote Republican, the Democrats vote Democrat. Elections are won and lost in swing states. And actually, actually can we use these tools to provide a more meaningful way of these conversations taking place? And I think Facebook, Google, Twitter... Uh, all have a big responsibility to, um, to try and promote that. Mm-hmm.
3: So if I can say something briefly, just in, de- in, in uh, more hopeful, <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in defense of bots, there's a, a, a neat study where a guy programmed a botnet, and this botnet's job was to find people saying really rude things on Twitter. One set of people was targeted were uh, racists, and another were just people saying mean things across political divisions, And this botnet was programmed to scold these people, to say uh, it, it depended on whether the bot identified you as a Republican or a Democrat. For Democrats, it would cue the moral suasion around caring for other people. So that you've said something hurtful here, you shouldn't, shouldn't do that to people. If you're a Republican, it would cue uh, authority as a kind of moral suasion more, more powerfully there. So it would be something like, Uh, Republicans ought not talk like this. We should follow the rules of public civility. Uh, And they found enduring effects on these scolded people's ongoing civility. People were nicer after having this bot, usually a bot programmed to look uh, like that person's political beliefs. If if you were a Republican, the bot appeared to be a Republican and and so forth. Uh, And it lasted at least a month. You were a nicer person after being scolded in just this way. So we can do better. <laughs> <laughs> we can <laughs> bring some people together, <laughs> and we can use some of the bad guys' tactics to do it.
0: So the quality engagement comes from an automated botnet by the by from the good. From uh, I don't know what botnet this, but yeah, sounds quite more well-ian. than yeah. Wellian.
1: Yeah, no, but there are loads
5: of yeah. positive. Yeah.
1: Bots, really. Um, for example, um, in Canada, there are bots that are tweeting whenever somebody inside um, a government is editing a government Wikipedia page. Um, but there's, there's loads of fun bots. There's loads of um, interesting pro-democracy ones. And I also think that um, when we're looking into the Alexas and the series, that a lot of innovation is going to come from conversational interfaces. Um, one thing I want to point out about bots is that, however, at the moment, the bots we're seeing often are not the ones that are actually conversational, that are actually talking to you. But a lot of the bots are very simple and are actually just plainly engaging with content. Um, so they are liking posts on Facebook, they are retweeting things, and why that matters is because it gives a piece of content social information that comes with it, um, a social information with a metric. And that then matters on the one hand because um, your newsfeed algorithm on Twitter and on Facebook is gonna think, like, oh wow, a massive people are engaging with that content now. We need to put this up higher on people's newsfeeds. We need to put that into the trend- trending section. So that's how bots can generate visibility. Mm-hmm. And then it also matters because of this entire social information concept of something that matters to people. So when you're thinking about yourself in a museum, and then there, probably you don't know that much about art, and then you're uh, walking into one of the rooms and then there's already um, a flock of people that are standing in front of one painting, are taking pictures of it. Um, I think most people will naturally also walk up to that painting as well and think like, oh, that must be important. That is something that I should know. And the same kind of dynamic is then also happening on social media. You have a piece of content that a lot of people have engaged with, not even actively you will think like this is the one that i need to go to but you're just gravitate to it and the algorithms are amplifying that effect and then when
4: you come back to that point around it not de- de- detailing where the source comes from and so you can't tell whether this is a guardian article or a breitbart article or just something produced by some teenagers in a bedroom um, and, and and that kind of um, endorsement becomes increasingly eroded in particular if you then the, the, the real accelerant of this is when you see someone that you know in your network share that piece of content because if I see something that lots of people are talking about my attention is going to be drawn to it when I see someone that I know sharing it I immediately uh, drop my guard uh, and you know be far more likely to believe it's true and I think that you know that 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 is a real effect happening online which I don't think at least you know, singularly uh, singularly given the responsibility for this polarisation but it certainly might
0: you you know accelerating. Certainly can help. Yeah. Uh, at this point, we'll open it up uh, for questions to the audience. We just ask that you speak up as we're re- recording this event. And Albert, do you have a microphone that moves around? <laughs> uh, <laughs>
6: Albert will move around with the microphone. <laughs> Thank you all very much for this really interesting round table. I just wanted to respond, I had a few short comments to what Greg said here and there, which also comes back to all of you, I think. First of all, just to say, I mean, this is a detail or not, but the the lies that, like the fact that Obama was a, a Kenyan Muslim sleeper agent. I mean, these are things in non-polling contexts that people really do believe. Um, they'll quote them to you, not because they're they're being polled um, for a survey, but because they've come to think that. So the partisanship, I think, is, is as we're talking about here, definitely fed by lies. Um, at the same time, though, it's really interesting. There's, there's a big nuance because um, it's really interesting what's going on in media research, and um, in particular, obviously, in the current context, there's a lot of concern about um, media losing trust, to losing the trust of its users, its readers, its audience. Um, and so various entities are looking into that, one of them being the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism in Oxford, um, and they found a, a short list of, of factors that people have come together to list that mean that they have, they feel less trust um, in their media sources, and one of those is negativity. Um, so you have this interesting contrast, very negative and also false you know, information that is swirling around uh, and is so prevalent, and you have the threads that you mentioned, the comment threads, where that swirling of, of negative extreme sentiment tends to continue, but at the same time, you and you have to ask if these are the same respondents, I mean, it's, it's important to ask who, who respondents are in this kind of research, but at the same time, you have this, this huge resentment of the focus on negativity and part of that being extreme partisanship within the media, so I think that's something that uh, deserves research and attention. And as you brought up the comment threads, I think that also uh, really deserves attention. And I know that from a translation studies perspective, it is one of the areas of research in news translation that, that scholars are, are becoming interested in. And I think it's a really interesting interdisciplinary in into all of this to, to be looking, among other things, at uh, comments, how they work, um, what information they work upon, etc. So thank you. Yeah.
3: Well quickly say something about the first thing and then I'll throw it to the rest of the panelists to speak to the rest of the interesting things you asked. I think it's really difficult to tell what certain types of voters actually believe. Especially, and this is the category of people most likely to believe the stuff we're talking about, extraordinarily low information voters. These are people that don't know very much about what they're talking about. Where I'm most familiar here is their beliefs around conspiracy theories, which are very similar to fake news in a bunch of ways. They're uh, propagated through the same mechanisms, they're believed by many of the same people, They, they operate in much the same way. Now, people that believe one conspiracy theory are the likeliest people to believe a second mutually contradictory conspiracy theory. So people that believe... Obama's been no, sorry. Uh, Osama bin Laden's been dead for uh, five years. Are also quite likely to report that he's escaped the SEAL team that, that actually killed him and is living somewhere in, in uh, <clears throat> Afghanistan. Uh, these people will report these beliefs separately uh, and claim to believe them in a polling context or in an interview context. And I don't know how to make heads or tails of that. I think they're getting a kind of uh, first identarian boon from expressing this belief, that's what I've talked about most so far, but also a self-assurance benefit from saying so. They're, they're, They're compensating for being low information voters by believing and claiming that they have the real truth, that you're in fact missing. And so the relationship of that to the actual truth of what we can say they believe is, eh. stuff.
1: tough. Uh, yeah, also to, to um, mirror a little bit what you were um, speaking about for trust. So um, for the World Economic Forum, there's a big survey that is coming out every year, and one of them just came out now in January. And they have found out that trust in legacy media, so in Your Guardian, Your Washington Post, is actually going up but trust in social media and into platforms is going down, which is kind of ironic thinking about that people read a lot of the news directly on those platforms. I think, um, and the other thing that I'm curious about is that we focus a lot on trust, not so much distrust, however. Um, I think in a in a social media ecosystem um, like we have in the U.S. where we have really we have more or less two distinct media systems. On the one hand, we have the liberal media system, on the the other hand we have an alternative um, media system with alternative facts, um, with a president who is pointing um, to the other side and is directly saying, you are all fake news, who has come out with uh, fake news awards, Um, So, and then that situation is also where I'm not sure how much would um, a food label of misinformation, disinformation content help. Um, I'm a big fan of it in general. Um, I think, however, when we're thinking about the U.S., which is so deeply polarized um, as a society, and where really there are people standing on one side and are pointing fingers saying you are fake news, and people standing on the other side saying the exact same thing, Um, how can we bridge that divide? Because I think we we can agree on what calories are. It's more difficult to agree on what the truth is and to put a label on that.
4: Um, I think the the penultimate point um,
0: that was discussed uh, reminded
4: me of something that Matt Gurzon
0: said um,
4: in the aftermath of the which was that it was more correct to say that it was not it was not that the left can't be, uh but that it were kind to and I think was pointing towards a certain queasiness of about the kind of cycle. Well, perhaps, as Jessica speculatively to politically successful means being more successful at exploiting difference, uh, and perhaps that has something to do with main cultures' origins in adversarial antagonistic online communities. Uh, just wonder, mm-hmm.
2: um, I think I can make it. Thank you for your question. Yeah, definitely, it's something to look at. Um, whether it's about the strong emotions and hate speech, or some rational criticism to the government, or to the elitarian discourse, um, I agree with you. I think, for example, the memes, uh, let's say the liberal alternative memes in Russia that I'm researching in particular, it's it's a drop in the ocean. Because when we talk about memes in general, it's very often borderline hate speech, it can be extremely sexist, it can be extremely vulgar, Right, it's not something uh, super nice and super rational, definitely not. So it does come from the um, kind of uh, Nan Gag and Four Chan from those slightly yeah. geek platforms first. Then it borrows from the language of the advertisement posters, the, the motivator memes, as you know, you know, the black frame with some picture mm-hmm. and some, you know, absolutely um, twisted opposing meaning uh, saying underneath. It also comes, I think, from the, the rhythm of life, the pace of life, when it's much easier to consume a meme, which becomes, you know, the fast food media, basically, of our days, uh, rather than read the whole article, right? It's, it's been proven by some research that people don't scroll down if it's not, doesn't fit in the, you know, the tablet or the phone. Uh, they, they'd rather consume something and move on and move on and move on. So I think that's why memes are so prominent. And uh, what we have now is that they talk about, um, they contain information, messages on all themes, including politics. You know, teenagers use memes to talk about relationships, let's say, and booze, right? And uh, the older, let's say, people more with, you know, voting power, voting age, they use it to talk about politics, but it doesn't mean that they don't use it as well for, you know, hate speech, booze, and relationships. Mm -hmm. So it's it's, it's a weird vehicle. I think we still need to look at it more.
4: I was just going to, on the previous question, on the the quality scoring piece, which I completely agree with with, with your view that um, there are real challenges around. I mean, I think the first thing that we're trying to solve is um, outside of what what we've been calling this Overton's window of the norm, where we're not trying to filter out the Daily Mail at one end and the Guardian at the other, but it really is to highlight far more clearly and obviously, you know. websites or content pieces that have been produced, you know, where the website ages less than 24 hours, where they clearly swapped their URL um, 65 times in the last four weeks, where they the, the image that they're using of Hillary Clinton, they didn't take and they've stolen it. And so these are all kind of uh, breadcrumb lead indicators that this piece of content has actually been produced um, by a nefarious organization for either clickbait commercial purposes or to mislead people. I think that's like stage one because there is vast amounts of that content circulating online, kind of unchecked. Um, how you then get into the process of scoring the quality uh, of a, of a piece of content that's been produced by Daily Mail versus The Guardian is a far more, I think, nuanced, complex, and challenging uh, set, of, set of set of problems. One piece of uh, one area of technology that is advancing rapidly is fact checking at scale, though. Um, and there are a number of organizations, Full Fact, which is a human-led fact-checking organization, and then a firm that we partner with called Fat Matter, who are trying to do it using AI, uh, is trying to build uh, a set of technologies that enable you to extract factual statements at scale, and then compare them to pre-existing knowledge banks, like the World Bank. So, you know, you can imagine a, a world in time where Donald Trump will get up and make a factual statement, uh, that will be stored, and hopefully then highlighted where Know, that petrol statement isn't true or wasn't fulfilled in some way. Again, the impact of that ultimately is questionable. People have been engaged with that. Um, but at least there will be some kind of uh, uh, trail uh, to source it. Of.
5: Thank you for a wonderful discussion. I just wanted to add to the numbers that 80,000 votes was all that Trump needed to get those swing states. So in the context of 120 million fake Facebook posts, I think that's important to add. But um, I want to go back to the question of, actually that hasn't quite come up, in whose interest might it have been to want disruption and to tip both the Brexit vote and the Trump election? Because, I think looking at truth is, as you all seem to agree, an impossible road to go down. And um, there are three things that haven't been mentioned here. And the key word is persuasion. So we're talking about what persuades to some extent. And nothing persuades as much as consensus, something that you drew attention to. So the number of clicks is itself capital, is itself a driver. So, um, and what that does in practice is create spaces of permission for new types of behavior. And I think that is unprecedented and it isn't the same as in the old days. I think that's a different type of effect. But what I'm saying is that um, in order to persuade differently, to counter that power of apparent consensus to give people permission to think that their view is shared by many and therefore okay and uh, legitimate. Um, Following the money seems to me to be a very effective way to burst that bubble. And you have Mercer, who funded Trump's campaign and Cambridge Analytica, founding the Leave campaign offices all the way back in 2011, I believe. Why? That's my question. So I think when we're when
1: we're looking into um, Brexit and the U.S. election, a lot of it was not actually about tipping the vote to the one end or the other, but I think it is more about sowing confusion and chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this one quote somebody told me, and I forgot all the facts because it's a soccer metaphor, and I don't know anything about soccer. And um, but it was um, like some sort of an impossible match, so. Um, a small league uh, versus Chelsea, and then they interviewed a player, and we're asking them, "So, what's your what's your goal for today?" And he said, "Like obviously, we cannot win this match, but we can destroy the field." And I think this is, in many ways, how um, how propaganda is trying to make its way into our lives. And so I'm an expert
4: on this, but through this. Uh Selection committee review from everything I've heard from experts who are experts on Russia. Sorry, um, um, <laughs> <laughs> that is an age-old, well-practiced technique from, from Russian KGB courses for you know, decades now. And actually, this is this has all the hallmarks of entropy, mm. chaos.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: We don't really care what the results are, but as long as we're stirring up the pot. Um, it, it's in our interest mm-hmm. and, and so I think on one hand there's been vast political gain and this has benefited this huge disruption in Europe has benefited Russia's position of power enormously um, and then secondly I think there, there is the huge commercial gain of which, gain of which Mercer has won not in our So Facebook have benefited from this huge upheaval massively. People have never been more engaged because of the polarisation because people get riled up and they just keep coming back and clicking and commenting and it's addictive. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think there's been a huge amount right now.
1: Yeah, I think we keep coming back to the Cambridge Analytica and those very sort of fringe companies, but um, you don't really need to go that far. You can just go to Facebook advertising. Mm -hmm. Um, If, for example, I know, okay, um, Anastasia seems to like pink sweatshirts, um, and I know her email address, I know her name, then um, I can, with a budget of $5 or even less, can make uh, pink cardigans pop up in your Facebook newsfeed tomorrow. And um, that is something that I don't need no Cambridge Analytica for, um, but it is simply available through Facebook's advertising platform and very low cost.
3: So, I have a it's kind of a, a multi-part statement, I guess. Um, so first of all, uh, you sort of talk about Russia and then you talk about kind of national kind of advertising stuff like this, right? You talked about this sort of democratic intelligence there. You talked about how Obama successfully used social media and stuff. So, you know, is it a problem if sort of national kind of entities, right, like uh, parties or PACs or whatever like this are actually using these kind of methods? And, or is it only a problem if it is, in fact, like an external, act, like, I have a kind of a speech, speech, right? So I could potentially, you know, hire these services through Facebook advertising, hire a campaign.
4: Uh, I mean, is that actually a problem this you know, in doing that in my own country to, you know, make my political opinions known? Facebook are the bad, and one of the things they were looking at is, what is it, sorry? Mm-hmm. Um, the sorry? Political parties using Facebook because, because there are a whole bunch of laws and regulation. So, one of the things Facebook don't want to see is regulation in in, in regulating what content media is distributed on platforms. what they are very keen on is um, the advertising regulations at, at election time, which has typically very strict regulations around it when it comes to TV, but has almost no regulations around it when it comes to social media platforms. And that is one area of legislation that encourages it, explicitly dis- encourages
1: it. Okay. Yeah, and I think I think transparency is really an important issue here. So when we're thinking about the difference between TV and the difference between Facebook, that is when 20 years ago, I wanted, if I wanted to do a political campaign or even a propaganda campaign, I would have put it in the mass media and on the TV. And then probably um, for the US, 20 or 30 million people would have seen that propaganda or even political campaigning spot that I would have made but now if I'm taking my same 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 amount of money and I'm taking it to Facebook um, the content that people are seeing um, will be given to them in an individual channel and by that I can also tweak it a little bit so I can make it a little bit more democratic for you um, whereas for your neighbor um, who might not agree on this same sort of issues as you do, I might tweak the message a little bit. And so with that opacity and with that intransparency, I think it's also what a lot of the problem about uh, political campaigning these days has to do.
0: It, to go back to the question, how it seems like we have these categories of influence, we have partisan influence that when political parties do it, we seem to, have to be uh, have well elaborated systems for Regulating it, and but we also seem to tolerate it and expect it to happen. But then we have this category of foreign influence that seems that is, um, you know, being followed up with investigations and outrage. And how do we navigate? How do we find that line? Where did where did we? How do we get to the to a point where we have a line in the first place? Mm -hmm.
3: So, I take it, and I think philosophers take it that there is a difference in kind in the moral question between external interference. And internal uh, influence, yes. much internal action, because you have free speech, as you say, and free political speech is a special is given special importance in most contemporary liberal democracies, such that we think you ought to be able to make anything that the government is going to count as speech. You can pursue that. Now, if the government includes certain magnified speech, like corporate speech, or speech you spend a lot of money on in order to amplify. If they consider that to be political speech, we, we face a couple problems. First, it means that people with lots of money can drown out or seek and obtain significant greater influence than people without lots of money. It brings money into politics in a way that is troubling lots of people thinking about the morality of these things. External interference is easier to parse. It's always been the case that we don't think external operators of any kind have democratic rights to influence decision making within a separate society. Now this is a principle that's more respected in the breach than uh, in, in actual practice, but that these two areas of are, are very
5: different, other concern, is, is not uh, kind of open My God
2: <laughs> It's really hard to find a feminist meme, to be honest, these days, because when we talk about a meme, we talk about the text that already went viral, so if something kind of received 10 clicks, it's not really a meme, but if it's a big thing, which means that Lots of people connected with it and find it funny, find it, uh, you know, making sense. I mean, that's the case. Unfortunately, that, that's not the optimistic one for the humanity. When we look at memes and, uh, uh, gender discourse, uh, maybe it goes back to this, you know, very simple jokes that people share, you know, over a smoke or like a small talk or whatsoever kind of to, to chill out, to be, to take some rest. And unfortunately, it all arrives at this point. Um, the other thing I can say about me is the anonymity, anonymity, the lack of authorship, because that's that's one of the great things about it, because people can share and they don't, It can get away with it, right? They don't get caught by censorship or whatsoever. I'm talking about the restricted uh, media colleges. But on the other hand, it's completely lost. You can see so many works of the illustrators, of the uh, you know, professional cartoonists from newspapers that something beautiful and amazing, but then the signature is lost, it's been uh, adjusted, it changes meaning uh, the notorious pepper, of the frog, it's a work of the professional illustrator, but he completely lost the ownership because it's been used and reused, and then Hillary Clinton's um, team claimed that it's the symbol of you know, right-wing uh, extremism, which was interestingly how the kind of very conservative politician would, would put a stamp on something belonging to the digital cultures, not necessarily understanding the whole dynamics about it. Because even these days people share pepper the frog on all kind of issues. It has nothing to do with you know being right or left, bad or good. It's just just one of the kind of jokey symbols that you can fill with meaning as you like. But yeah, anonymity and sexism are there. Can I just make one point?
5: Uh, which is that, that that I
4: think this is a huge issue which I guess be all another massive long panel. Um, which is on the training of AI systems and the mm-hmm. um, the bias, you know, our human bias being built into, so one of the big fears is AI is continuing to shape our world and we give, we're handing over more and more responsibility to machine learning systems, whether that's to choose what movie we'll watch next or whether someone uh, is innocent or guilty in a court case. So there was recently a whole bunch of experiments done in Israel where they fed it a bunch of example, um, uh, data from previous court cases and then they asked machine learning in, in the background to evaluate new cases and make a decision whether the, the, the perpetrators is innocent or guilty. And what they quickly found was there was a racial bias toward people who weren't white Israelis. Um, and that, you know, that potential... So there
3: was a bias towards...
4: No, no, to people who were non-white, basically. they were they were benefited by no 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 okay bias again bias bias again sorry sorry, bias again so more likely to be found guilty um and i think you know so when we have these issues of of, of sexism or bias toward a particular color or creed and we're 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 training these ai and machine learning systems on human curated data um there are huge dangers i think involved in um you know
0: Yeah. I just want to plug a book that, uh, Weapons of Math Destruction, I don't know, you've seen this book, Kathy O'Neill. Uh, she talks eloquently about this. Maybe that is an inspiration for our next wise <laughs> and tech panel. Uh, I want to, before we thank our speakers, I want to invite everyone to join us for wine and light snacks uh, at the back of the room. But for now, uh, can we give a round of applause?